Dear Billy, welcome back to Hot Godzilla Summer. My name is John. And my name's Tracker Henry. That's right, and we're John and Tracker Henry with this week's installment of the Hot Godzilla Summer, a series of supplemental readings from Zero Credits where we talk about all the movies in the legendary MonsterVerse Godzilla Cinematic Universe 10 movies, five weeks. This week we are talking about 2017's Kong Skull Island, directed by Jordan Vogt-Roberts. That's right. And for those of you who have never listened to a supplemental reading before, we just want to warn you at the top of the episode that we are about to spoil the heck out of this movie. So if by some chance you're listening to this and you have not yet seen Kong Skull Island, it's on HBO Max. Go check it out and then come back and listen to all the things you might have missed or you correctly saw because how hard is it to miss a detail in a movie? You tell me. I don't know. I see them all. Yeah, I mean, we do this entire series uh, because we notoriously and famously and uh, infamously uh, notice everything about every movie we've ever watched and never miss anything. J- yes, exactly. And and to that end, John, did you notice that in this movie, King Kong is in it? Uh, I did. I did notice yeah. that King Kong was in it. Now, did you notice... Uh, that in the last episode, uh, you said that you weren't sure these movies were supposed to be connected. Uh, and then we watched this movie, and it was painfully obvious that they were. Yes, very painfully obvious, but very subtly so. Only because in the very opening scenes, not in the opening scene, but in the scene after the opening scene, some might call it the second scene. Don't know why I'm belaboring this. And the scene of John Goodman talking to the senator. John Goodman makes reference to an event that happened in 1954 where nuclear tests were actually fighting off a giant creature. And that is in direct relation to the Godzilla movie that we talked about two weeks ago because that's that they were fighting off Godzilla. Exactly. And also Monarch is in it. Monarch was in the previous Godzilla movie. There's a whole bunch of connections. Clearly they were they were meant to line up. Uh, but this is exciting. Kong Skull Island, we're finally here. The movie of these movies that I have seen the most of. Right. I've seen this movie twice. I think for me, I've seen this movie prior to this viewing. I'd seen this movie four times. And let me just say right here at the top, it is a pretty, pretty good movie. Pretty solid. But also, like, something we didn't get into about Godzilla was that it, it it borrowed a lot of horror elements, elements from horror movies. And and Kong Skull Island goes in a completely different direction and is just basically a Vietnam War movie. It, it's really interesting what this movie ends up doing. I, I will say at the, at the top that this movie rocks. Uh, this movie r- rules. Uh, and in some total, as someone who... Uh, would admit to being a big fan of the late 60s, early 70s kind of Vietnam American military aesthetic. This movie is very far up my alley. Uh, and it, it's kind of a, in a lot of ways, a love letter to your classic Vietnam War movies, you know, your platoons and such. Yeah, it, it, it definitely is paying homage or fitting in with the, the style of like an Apocalypse Now or a platoon or a good morning Vietnam to some extent. <laughs> not as not as much. Not as much. But, yeah, but definitely the music choices, the uh the songs blaring out of helicopters going over swampy terrain. There's a lot of just subtle nods or just kind of homages 
uh, to that genre of film. And I mean, if, if we're going to, uh, in good faith, go back to the details of Godzilla, which we uh, talked about two weeks ago, uh, and how we appreciated uh, kind of, I don't know, having seen all of these movies, going back to Godzilla, it was very easy for me to appreciate how much soul that movie had and what it was trying to do. Uh, and I'd say doubly so for Kong Skull Island. This movie makes very definitive choices uh with its cinematography uh kind of constantly like this movie has so much character it's insane there's a dutch angle in this movie there's a dutch angle this movie opens uh well first of all i do want to backtrack a little bit and say that uh we don't even need to know that monarch is in this movie we don't even need to hear about the hollow earth we don't even need to like see uh all the godzilla stuff at the end, to know that this movie takes place uh, within this kind of Godzilla universe because it has an exposition opening. Now, granted, the exposition opening for this is about the history of the United States and things that have happened since 1943. Uh, right. But it's still the same kind of stock footage exposition opening that the previous Godzilla film had. Right, right. Instead of like there being redacted files and, and homages, not homages, that's the wrong word, but hints of a Godzilla being being out there. This was like more of an intellectual montage of a changing world since World War Two and all of the big like American kind of things. We had speeches from per- pretty much every president from the time. Uh, but very much in the style of Godzilla, so that to let you know that, hey, same universe, just a little bit, but also all of the other details John said forget about are also here to substantiate that. Yeah, I mean, the, and I just think it's cool. I, I think it's cool that this movie, even kind of this early in our, our journey through the Godzilla movies, kind of... Uh, I don't know. It, it has a similar opening, but it's not yeah. telling you things you don't know because the world we're about to enter is totally secret. It's actually right. a reflection on John C. Riley's character and how the world is changing without him. Exactly. And they are establishing like a stylistic list of moves to pull at, at the opening of one of these movies to let you know that, yes, we're going for a similar thing. This is the same universe. Uh, and you can tell not because of the content, but by the way, we're showing you this content. And then you get this really strong divergence from the style of the last film, uh, kind of this in-your-face indicator that this movie is going to make some very strong stylistic choices, because the first thing you see is a body tumbling out of the sun. Yeah, like like you do on a normal occasion. I mean, uh, something that I think we're going to come back to a few times as we talk about this. Uh, I said it was directed by Jordan Vogt-Roberts. Are you familiar with Jordan Vogt-Roberts at all? That is not a name that strikes anything in my brain. I I think your average person has no reason to really know who Jordan Vogt-Roberts is. Uh, however, people who fall into two spheres, of which I am in both, uh, do know. So he's a director of a film called Kings of Summer. I think he's also directed some TV shows. I've never seen Kings of Summer. However, the two groups you have to fall into to know Jordan Vogt-Roberts are to be very on Twitter uh, and to be a huge fan of the Metal Gear Solid franchise. And I am in both camps, uh, so I'm very familiar with Jordan Vogt-Roberts, someone who is very vocal on Twitter and is slated to direct the upcoming Metal Gear Solid film. 
Oh my gosh, you've got to be kidding me. They're making a movie and it's not being directed by Hideo Kojima? They're making a movie eventually. Jordan Vote Roberts and Hideo Kojima are good friends. Uh, they're, they're quite good friends. They hang out a lot. They visit each other's studios quite a bit. Uh, and something that I think this movie reeks with is that Jordan Vote Roberts went to the Hideo Kojima School of Filmmaking. This movie feels like a Metal Gear Solid game. And that it highly condemns the horrors of war? Uh, not so much that. Mostly the long, lingering shots. It It's, uh, I don't know, I, I feel like the phrase style over substance is overly reductive, but it's a very stylistic movie, and if you notice throughout with this movie, a lot of the shots are what some might say overly stylish uh characters are too centered uh you you create very stark images very often uh, in this movie that aren't necessarily totally naturalistic classic kojima stuff right and, and we might also linger on a panning so a panning shot of some helicopters might just end on a dragonfly and linger on that dragonfly for one or two seconds more than you you think it should um just because I can't explain it. I don't know why, but just because. Yeah, a lot of shots in this movie, and I don't think there's anything wrong with filming a movie this way, are just to be cool. They don't necessarily yeah. communicate things all of the time. Um, pause for barking. Oh, <laughs> pause for dog screaming. Yeah. Uh, so, yes. Uh, so, he's directing it. And one comparison I want to make to Godzilla is that the, just how the movies handle the different, like, uh, loss. Uh, thousands of people die in Godzilla, but you don't really feel it. It's just massive destruction in the way of, like, maybe a hurricane sweeping through, a, and, like, an entire island country. It's like, oh, that's really sad. Uh, but you don't really see those individual people suffering. Whereas in this movie... Let's say a couple of handful of people died, but we see all of them die on screen in horrific, horrible ways. No one is just sort of swept away off screen except for one person, one exception. Um, but it's just like, yeah, you see spider legs going through a guy, people getting ripped in half, Kong destroying helicopters out of the sky and stepping on people and just. Every death in this movie is so gruesome and awful and hard to watch. I mean, this movie really has death down to a science, and I think you nailed it. Godzilla kind of, it, death in Godzilla movies happens like a flood is happening. Lots of people die really quickly, and you're not sh exactly sure what's happening. Uh, whereas in this, it's, it's like people dying in war. Horrible things, different horrible things happen to people. Uh, and end their lives, and really, let's be honest, as someone who's a connoisseur of death in movies, really awesome creative ways. Uh. This this movie really uh, really deals heavily in uh, in creative, gruesome deaths, and I I can really get behind that. Yeah, I, it, but it, it goes to highlight that this is absolutely a war movie, not a monster movie. It's like it's a war movie with monsters in it. Exactly. But it, yeah, you know, you know the cast basically. You, you've got definitely there's a military presence here. There's troops, so that 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 connection is very very in front of you. But you you know your cast of characters, and as they start dropping, and you see each one of them die, it's like you're losing your brothers and your platoon. 
because it's so personal and like these are people you spent most of the movie with. So you feel for it more so than Godzilla landing on a building and wiping out, you know, everyone in that building. Yeah, I mean, the great thing about the military in movies generally uh, is you're not going to focus on a ton of people. They all have names that they call each other by constantly. They all kind of have slightly different things going on. But the reason why it's so easy to make movies about police officers and people in the military, they're not too different first of all, but also they all kind of have the same goal and that they've all been told to do something. It's uh, it's the reason why the Mass Effect games work so well is because the end goal is always the same. It's just in the details right. that, uh, that the choices people make matter. So this movie does something that I feel like the original, not the original, but the previous Godzilla film didn't do great is every character clearly has their thing, a very distinct personality, a distinct look, little helmets with different stuff written on them. You really start to to care for these dis, disparate Vietnam people. Yeah, it's one of the things where you have to wonder if the, uh, the, the script writer, the screenplay writer read maybe Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carried. Because there are all these very personal details like things written on helmets and specific items they carry and, and goals they have. And, and like some of the characters can be boiled down to just one of them wants to go to the, the Florida Keys. That's that's the entirety of what we know about them. Uh, but it's it said once in the beginning and it's said once at the end. And that's all the through line we needed for that character. I mean, honestly, I think you would be... You wouldn't be doing the wrong thing by making a movie where every character just had one thing about them. Because that's really as much time as you have to invest in what they have going on. Like, you can't have a character where you're like, you're a father, but also you hate conspiracy theorists, but also you hate Godzilla. But you're also conflicted about Godzilla because you have a past with Godzilla and you want to do the right thing. But you're conflicted about it. It's like, come on, just have one thing. Have yeah. one. Like Samuel that's- Jackson's character in this is leader hates King Kong. Well, yeah, yeah, uh, but it, it very much earned. Like, you know, we can boil his character down to that, but this is a leader who got his entire troop through Vietnam without losing any of them. And then, yeah, let's just say that I might be, I might be reading too much into this, but like in the first few minutes that they're on Skull Island, he loses every, just basically his entire unit. Mm hmm. And they were about to go home. And this was supposed to be a simple geological experiment where they map an island. And now people like his men who are about to go home and taste freedom are just dead and gone. Yeah, he wants to kill that thing. He wants to avenge his fallen men. I mean, you know, he he was a commander in the Vietnam War. He probably saw a lot of people die and he was retiring. And this was a totally optional thing where he had to live through the same horrors again. And how incredible. I don't think you often see this in movies, if ever, where one character, a man with very limited resources, sees um, a giant monster and thinks, I'm going to kill it because I hate it. I'm, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You see that but, with like big corporations or people of means who like their their intentions turn evil and Samuel Jackson's character, yes, that does happen to him. But he has very few resources. He's like, I'm just a man and he's just a 300 foot tall gorilla and I'm going to kill him. He's kind of like finally, you know, an even challenge. Yeah, I mean, we pulled out of <laughs> Vietnam. I'm going to do right and kill the monkey. 
Yeah, he's got it's a one throwaway line where he says like this is a war that we're going to end or something like that. I I'm paraphrasing. But that sums up his entire motivation. Like he thinks they shouldn't have pulled out of Vietnam. They they gave up. But this fight he's going to end because it it's about time they ended a fight at all. Yeah, it's it's the same thing where uh Mason Weaver, uh the photographer played by Brie Larson says and we lost the Vietnam War. He says we didn't lose, we ended the war. And then right. on the island he says we're he repeatedly he repeats the phrase we're going to end this. And this echoes through all the characters. Kind of all the characters have one or two really strong things going on that just really makes us like them. Even the Shea Wiggums of the world who played Cole, the guy who just kind of was uh, oh. despondent and tactical. Uh, but yes. you liked him. The, you liked the him Gary Sinise thing... type. Exactly. He was just a no-nonsense guy. Right. No-nonsense guy. Probably lost more of himself in war than he, he's willing to admit because I, I don't think when, like, when choppers start going down left and right and he loses his sergeant, I don't think there's any part of him that thinks he's getting off the island because he's already gone. Exactly. Which is why he does he does that uh he, he's self sacrificing himself and he thinks this is gonna end it, but the movie the movie looks at him and sneers because this isn't a movie, basically. In this in this moment where the where the, the skull crawler tail whips him into a mountain and he explodes, the movie is saying, No, fuck movies that do that. That shit doesn't work. No one should do that. This is reality. <laughs> It's the best death in the movie, and it's also we have this kind of persistent, uh, persistent myth in Western culture, especially Western media, of a heroic sacrifice that saves your friends, like the destruction of the self uh, to save your loved ones, especially like young loved ones or or women. And the movie looks at that; it's like, no, that's it's it's not a healthy thing to believe, and it's not a right. smart thing to do. Right, exactly, and, and completely uh, he just unnecessary. Tail whips him in the side of a mountain. He just blows up, and the movie yeah. plays it. Respect to the movie, it plays it like it's sad and awful, but it's very funny that that happens. It, it is, it is the darkest of comedy. <laughs> so it's so funny because you never imagine that a movie made in America in the modern day is actually going to do that, and it no, just it, it, does it. It is Mark Ruffalo jumping from the spaceship and like we're expecting him to turn into the Hulk on the way down, but he just slams his neck into the side of the Bifrost and tumbles into the sea because, <laughs> because fuck your expectations. Yeah, it's 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 so good. Uh, no, I, I really like moments like that that catch you off guard because you think, oh, he's going to sacrifice himself. And of course, people who are going to sacrifice themselves, they've got plot armor. Until the sacrifice is, you know, carried through and they save the day. For a movie to like to to take this time honored sort of like noble, uniquely male thing and just throw it into the side of a mountain and make it explode is just like, you know, Italian chef kiss perfection. It's just a, a movie making masterstroke, and it this movie. The, the level of enjoyment we get out of Shea Wiggum's character up to and including him blowing up on the side of a mountain, uh, Samuel Jackson's character, is extended to all of them. All the characters in this movie are great. And also, real quick shout out to whoever casted this movie or Jordan Vote Roberts if he had any input in the matter. Or maybe this just ended up being the case. 
Uh, this movie lets a lot of really skilled people eat. Yes, you have your John Goodmans who needs to be in everything. I love John Goodmans. Uh, you get your Shea Wiggum who always looks like he's on the verge of a violent mental break. Uh, but a lot of awesome comedy people are in this movie. You, oh, yeah. you got your you got your Mark Evan Jacksons, who you might know from Brooklyn Nine Nine, The Good Place, etc. But uh, yeah. it, I know as being an incredible improviser uh, and and a super super funny guy. He plays Steve uh, once again. Uh, in terms of death in this deaths in this movie, he gets oh a classic. God. He gets the oh no, and then gets stomped by a monster. Uh, wait, so he gets that, but that's after a scene where the the so two parties have split up, military and science. He's unfortunate enough to get you know he he lands with the military people, but then those two parties come together again, and he has a chance to rejoin the scientists. But now he's kind of bonded with these guys. And, like, one of them says, like, are you with the big dogs or are you out? And he's like, well, don't want to not be with the big dogs. And the next – the very next thing that happens to him, the next time he is on screen, he is getting squashed by King Kong. And it's like, you should have picked the scientist, bro. It, it's the price of being with the big dogs. I'm sorry to say. He knew the risks. Yeah. yeah. He knew the what milit- being a big dog took. Yeah. Uh, so – one thing about Brie Larson's character Mason Weaver or whatever her name is, um, there she. I'm sorry, I don't mean to call people out at being bad at their jobs, but she has so many, so many opportunities to just take one quick picture of King Kong. They keep just showing her taking one. pictures of wildlife, the indigenous peoples, and she could have been taking pictures of skull crawlers, King Kong. She, they even there's even like a painstakingly slow moment where she has King Kong and the skull crawler fighting in frame, and all she has to do is move her finger a quarter of an inch to hit the button to snap the photo, and it's she's interrupted. She never gets a photo of the thing. Never. It's unbelievable. It's 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 truly unbelievable that she never thinks once to get a picture of the massive ape. And, and the thing is, the thing is, her whole motivation there of being there. Is that she knows that people are lying about what the mission is about. And she kind of wants, she wants to go there and figure out what the lie is. What's the truth? And she sees the truth multiple times, has multiple, multiple opportunities to take a snapshot of the truth. And she never fucking does. It's, I mean, she has a perfect opportunity to take a picture of Kong and the skull crawler fighting and she just shoots off a flare a flare purely i think for cinematic reasons because i don't think it really does much yeah uh yeah insane that she never takes a picture of kong in absolutely insane um but i i i don't know brie larson phenomenal actress actor uh her facial expressions steal every every scene she's in the background of let me. She, this, I'm gonna have John's classic Brie Larson rant. Are you ready? I'm here for it. Everyone who is a dumbass piece of shit on this stupid earth has the same criticism of Brie Larson because they always say she can't emote, she can't show any emotion, she seems bored. I'm like, have you seen anything she's? She in she does she she's great at acting. She just doesn't act effusive and bubbly all the time. Yeah, no, her her 
she's in the background of a lot of these scenes. And when something happens, like she's turning up that dial to 11. She's emoting all over the place. A lot of it is shock or surprise or fear. Um, But she gets that across very well. Maybe those people are, are talking about when she's in Captain Marvel and that character is a little, I mean, less emotive, but in everything else she's in, she's, she's fine. I'm, I think Props Brie Larson is great. I think Carol Danvers is a very boringly written character. Yes. That is not yeah. her fault. Um, not her I think fault at all. She does absolutely the most with what she has. I think that she is a tremendous actor, and I think that what a lot she of has people... are big eyes. <laughs> big eyes, which are great for emoting every yeah. great actor. Huge eyes. She has really big eyes and like a canvas of a face to paint with those eyes. Like she, she like. Anyway, that's the. I just wanted to get that out there before I forgot it. In old um, time theater, in old time theater times, they used to exclusively cast people who had large heads with large faces and big eyes because their emo. It, it was just easier for an audience to read their emotions. I'm not saying yeah, that Larson has any of those things other than large, beautiful eyes. Uh, come on the podcast, Brie Larson. But I'm just yeah, saying. Let's I, talk I think that, we'll talk I think about your everyone, big face. We'll talk about her big face. Come on, come on the podcast, big face. Well, uh, how, 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 yeah, we'll ask such questions as what what is it like to have such a big face? Yeah, I'm also a pretty big faced person, so it'd be nice to talk to someone who knows the struggle. I can't find masks that fit. No, not like COVID get, masks, like you, you know, masquerade. You got to get one of those, some of those huge masks that they used in like Greek tragedies. To let the audience know how they should be feeling, you gotta you gotta get one of those. Yeah, I uh, I'm always wearing the frowning one because it was the only one I could afford. Even though sometimes I'm happy, I nah. just feel like everyone who says that shit about Brie Larson are just people. I think that there's a subset of people who their barometer for judging acting switches when they start seeing a, a female actor. And they start to judge it based on, is this how I would like a female to act versus is is this good acting? Uh, yeah, I, I think that some people are like, I think that Brie Larson looks like she'd be mean to me. <laughs> so they think she's a bad yeah. actor. It's that coupled with the fact that uh, for the press junket for Captain Marvel, she made a couple of comments like, can we get some movie reviewers that aren't white men? You know, just to get some diversity in the in the movie review circle, and of course that had like huge backlash. And those people might be springing on to any sort of sort of thing they can latch onto to be like, oh, she's not a good actress. She doesn't even act like my favorite actress. I, I don't want to throw anyone under the bus, um, but bubbly McFake person, you know. Yeah, I. Uh, it's a real shame what uh, what popular opinion has done to Brie Larson, and we're doing all this talk and all this yipping and yapping about actors and the characters they play, but we have horribly buried <laughs> oh, no. the lead, Henry. I know that's yeah. I we've I been talking wanna... about this for nigh on thirty minutes, and we haven't talked about the <sighs> biggest fucking bombshell of this entire movie. I didn't want to force it. I was going to do a transition like five minutes ago, but I, it seemed like the Brie Larson talk was was important. But yes, yes, there was a surprise buried in this movie—a surprise that my 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 dear wife Jamie discovered within the first five minutes of it because she recognized him before I did. I recognized him immediately. 
Do you, do you want to tell the good people at home? So, I don't know if you know this, but May is a month of manifesting. In the month of May, your manifestations are more powerful than they are. I don't know, a lot of Zoomers on TikTok have been telling me these sweet cheat codes I can write in the air to manifest things. I have been manifesting uh, the idea that all movies... Uh, that we have talked about in our two summer marquee franchises, which is the summer of the fast and the furious and uh, hot Godzilla summer. I've been manifesting that they're connected and lo and behold, they are. That's yes, right. We, we have found our connection at last. So through the fast and furious, the director <laughs> of the first fast and furious who shan't be named went on in his, uh, in his uh, rightful exile to direct a little movie called The Hurricane Heist, which we did a supplemental reading of. Uh, and now we've learned that this, the Hurricane Heist supplemental reading is, in fact, a bridge because the main character of that playing Will Rutledge, uh, one Tony Kebbell, is John Chapman in Kong Skull Island. The lead from The Hurricane Heist is what initially seems like the lead of Kong Skull Island, but then he's viciously killed. Unceremoniously uh, killed. Yeah. He is in this movie. Uh, he is speaking in the same shitty accent, which I we are now starting to believe might just be his voice. For which <laughs> I, what a shame, because we really thought it was a super fake southern accent. It still sounds super fake, but he's still putting it on. So either that's his voice or that, as my wife joked, that's the only skill on the back of his, <laughs> his headshot is I can do a southern accent. It just says Southern question mark. Right. And, and like no directors, like it's the only skill on his rap sheet. I, I mean, uh, I don't want to take it away from that him. That might not be his voice. Just to, just to give you a hint. He was born in Pontefract UK. Well, then he needs <laughs> some help. Just uh, be British. Just be British. Yeah. That's the thing. I mean, they let Tom Hiddleston be British and boring in this movie. So I, I, I guess they couldn't afford two boring British people. I don't know. So it's all connected. My manifestations have worked. Uh, so thank you, TikTok Zoomers, for teaching it, me how to manifest. Goes a little deeper, though, John, because uh, a little plot detail of Skull Island is that it is 100 uh, percent encircled by a raging storm. Oh, it is. Yes, it is. Uh, uh, the the force of ten atomic bombs going off at all times uh, surround so, Skull Island. Th this this Tony Kebbell for the second time and and literally year after year was it <laughs> starred in movies where hurricane force winds were a major obstacle. Uh, unbelievable! I did not even think of that. Oh yes, uh, it was. Yeah, Hurricane Heist two. Kong Skull Island, <laughs> the the death of Tony Cavill. Yeah, you are uh, you are not wrong. Maybe there's a connection there. Maybe it's all connected. I'm gonna keep. Here's another connection. That, oh, is there? So you you said in Hurricane Heist he played a character named Willie Rutledge, right? Yeah, Will Rutledge. I believe I'm not a hundred percent certain. Right. Uh, what's his son's name in this movie, John? Billy. No. <laughs> Yeah. No, his son's name is Billy. He went up for adoption. The father who dies in the first five yeah. minutes of Hurricane Heist is adopted dead. Yeah. Oh, my God. That means when Hurricane, that Hurricane 2020, oh, no, he'd be about 40. That's about right. Yeah. 
They're the same. Oh it's the They're same the family. And then, of course, if you <laughs> believe the hurricane heist takes place in the same universe as Fast and the Furious, which some might, yeah. these might be in the same cinematic universe. And they in fact, absolutely... this is an extension of the Fast and Furious uh, right. uh, summer so of Fast and the you, Furious. You heard it here first, folks. In a Fast and Furious movie to come, they are going to do some type of kaiju. Godzilla, maybe even himself, itself, versus the Fast and Familia. I'm calling it now. I have a bombshell. Is this about the tweet that I think I saw? No, not at all. This is a a thought that I had while I was on one of my uh, mental health walks today. So now we know, potentially, allegedly, that the uh, legendary MonsterVerse is, in fact, part of the Fast and Furious cinematic universe. We know that. It's allegedly a fact. However, the legendary MonsterVerse is an interesting name to choose for the brand that you're creating, isn't it, Henry? To include the name of the production company, eh? Yeah, that is kind of strange. Why? Did you know that Legendary Pictures also produced another kaiju-centric movie? Pacific Rim? Pacific Rim. Okay. So, perhaps one could say that Pacific Rim takes place in the future of the Legendary Monsterverse, and then by extension is part of the Fast and Furious cinematic universe. So there's going to be an early version of the Jaeger, which is based on car parts. Yes, there is going to be 50 tons of American muscle and right. 12 tons of cold rolled Pennsylvania steel uh, and will we'll rise from the sea to fight Mechagidora. Right. And drifting is just an extension of being part of the familia. When you're family, you can think the same. Exactly. They're all drift compatible. They're all drift they, compatible. Look, they drift in the movies. They're drifting all the time. That's where, the, Tokyo, that's where it came from. Tokyo, Tokyo drift. drift. It's all fucking connected. The, to, uh, <laughs> Thomas? No. Uh, Who? Dominic Toretto. Thomas Toretto. Dominic Toretto dies at the end of one of the Fast and Furious movies. His body is donated to science, and from his brain, they discover the science of being drift compatible because he had been drift compatible with 10 plus people over the course of his life. That leads to advancements in science, which creates the Jaeger Initiative. It's all coming together. Idris Elba is the same character, but he's a clone who's been brought back to life from Hobbs and Shaw. Yeah, it it all makes sense. If you don't think it makes sense, you're insane. You're stupid. We don't want to know you. Anyway, enough of that bullshit. Back to Skull Island. Um, We've talked a lot about the characters and the plot. Here's something I want to I want to chew out with you, um, chew chew through with you. I don't know how to say this. In the opening scene, the very opening scene, we've with the the bodies falling from the sun and the two pilots crashing on the island and the reveal of King Kong. I honestly feel like the movie does a little bit of a distur- uh, disservice to the reveal of of Kong being on the island uh, when all the helicopters head up through the storm clouds. So if you if you can imagine a version of this movie where you don't even know the name of the movie and 
you don't have that opening scene where we sing King Kong, uh, and we just we like we got helicopters going through storm clouds. Tension is ramped up really high. And then you break through to the other side. It's really peaceful. You've got that montage of them setting up camp and starting the bombing, and then a fucking palm tree goes right through a helicopter, and the next shot is a hand grabbing a helicopter, and it's revealed to be Kong. That would be so much more of like a jaw-dropping what-the-fuck moment. Yeah, I mean, I I think that's a great point that I hadn't considered. The movie is very clearly uh, married to the character of John C. Riley, who I I think is a good character. I do like his through line, and I, I do appreciate what that opening scene does for his character. I just don't know if we needed Kong there, you know? I feel like no matter which way you slice it, this movie was going to be called was going to be called Kong Skull Island, it's right? About so King you, Kong. yeah, but I think that you could have made a version of this movie where it is unclear what happens to the U.S. fight the U.S. and Japanese fighter pilots on the island. I don't think you need to show King Kong when that happens. Uh, you could imply it because you'd know you're going into a King Kong movie, certainly. But I, I think that you're totally right. The tree going through the helicopter is the most, like, gruesome, unexpected, jarring. The way it's shot, that the music is still playing, all the the cinematography is staying exactly the same. There's, like, no forewarning of that tree going through the windshield of that helicopter. That would have been perfect. Yeah, absolutely. And I can can only – I never saw the trailer for this one. So I can only think maybe their trailer moment – Likewise to the Godzilla movie with the with the the halo drop and uh, people parachuting right past Godzilla, I can only imagine that that helicopter scene might be it might have been a great trailer and maybe that's what I want from the treatment because like you said, there's no way they're not going to call this movie Kong something and they, they didn't even like the Godzilla movie was called Godzilla, so you know these people these these monsters are in the movies what. You know, you can't get around that fact. I just, you know, just maybe it did a disservice showing all of Kong in the opening. Yeah, like, too I, much I totally it. agree. Yeah. But I, I... That's my one gripe with the movie besides the Brie Larson thing. I'd say it's... It actually opens up my second gripe about this movie. Okay. And it's not a gripe. It's just kind of a trend that's going to continue, I guess. Is uh, this movie kind of sets a precedent of monster scale fighting. So what we really enjoyed about Godzilla is similar to the original Godzilla. Everything felt like a natural disaster was happening. You never really saw anything from Godzilla's shoulder level. Like you right. never saw things in Godzilla's eye line. Things were never at the same level of Godzilla. Absolutely. Uh, they, yeah. And and this movie, I think uh, at the very end for the, uh, for the big skull crawler fight actually violates that a little bit. Uh, and and chooses to to make the fight between the skull crawler and King Kong uh, like human scale, like it's slow and there's a lot of cool stuff happening in that fight. I love that fight, but it doesn't look like two big monsters fighting. It looks like two big slow things fighting. And this is a trend that uh, continues, I think, uh, in in upcoming movies that I don't particularly like. I like when big monsters look big, and the movie does a very good job of making King Kong look impossibly huge. Uh, oh, but it in violates that fight, they violate that, and I didn't love it. it. They also violate the scale just a tiny bit um, between two scenes 
The first scene being when Mason Weaver is lifting the helicopter off the, off the giant water buffalo and Kong shows up to save it. There's a shot with Brie Larson and her entire person taking up maybe a third of an inch and King Kong being just massively, massively huge. Fast forward about an hour into the movie, there's a scene with Tom Hiddleston and Brie Larson standing on a cliff and King Kong comes up to them and their eye level and the scale is just completely ruined. She's not (laughs) – like if if the first scene was true, Kong's head should be massive, not as small as it is. Oh, absolutely. Uh, King Kong changes scale multiple times in this movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think kind of most notably when the helicopters are flying toward him and this shot, mm-hmm. to be clear, rips. There's like a blue haze awesome covering King Kong and you can just see his face blocking out the sun. He's impossibly huge in that shot. Right. Right. And then later it's like, oh, Brie Larson fits in the palm of his hand. Got it. Yeah. Yeah, so a tiny, tiny, look, this is nitpicky stuff. It has nothing to do with the quality of the movie whatsoever. I really personally like the final monster fight. Oh, yeah, um, the final monster fight is, it's so cool. It has so much awesome stuff going for it. It sets up Kong using tools as an advantage over the more simple, simplistic reptilian adversaries he might come up against. Yeah, and one thing that I really, that's actually pretty awesome that does come up again yeah it Uh, does but something that this movie does every king kong movie does uh they found a way to do a kong escaping his chains scene in a movie where kong is never detained right uh, which is very cool that's that's a motif in king kong movies now if you'll notice in in the previous episode of hot godzilla summer when we were talking about the original godzilla we made a lot of comparisons artistically between the new one and the old one but that's because the original godzilla uh is a masterpiece and i'm not making similar comparisons here because the original king kong is not a good movie i do not think that the original king kong is particularly good or has anything particularly important to say it's a super rote oh humans are selfish monsters thing i don't i don't love the original king kong um, yeah. But him escaping his chains is definitely a motif that carries throughout like all of these movies. So to have this in that movie was very cool. How did you feel about the uh, you know the beauty in the palm of the the beast hands motif that they also found a way to to recreate in this movie? Uh, I enjoyed it. My my concern watching this movie the first time back in 2017 when Brie Larson like touched her hand to his head or whatever. My concern was he was going to like take her and she'd be a damsel damsel in distress. Oh, and she was yeah. never a damsel in distress. So to uh, she was to get in that the way they did uh, is definitely I don't know. I applaud them for being able to put those two things in the movie, but have them not be. Uh, either rote or sexist. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I don't know. However, I go back and I... if we if we are comparing it to old King Kong movies, uh, Peter Jackson's King Kong and then this King Kong also both have horrifying bug shit that I don't like. I know. Well, Why I, I could have to have giant horrifying bug shit. I didn't remember the amount of other huge creatures on this island. That spider, oh my god. The it was, spider's like it, the most horrifying part of this movie. Much like in Peter Jackson's King Kong, the weird grub things that eat people are the most horrifying part of the movie. This is, the spider had the intelligence to know how to use its feet as a weapon. 
What yeah. the fuck? And it could like what suck people up. It had it had claw arms. Yeah, it no. had mandibles. Oh, every part of that was like I. This is the grossest thing ever. And then I felt so bad when Will Rutledge shot that big stick bug thing. Yeah. That made me feel sad. And then he got eaten by a skull crawler. So all was right with the world. I did want to uh, to real quick uh, talk about Jordan Vote Roberts again, maybe for the last time. Uh, but I did want to call out uh, the, the fact that his uh, imprint is all over this movie as a uh, what I would call a huge fucking nerd. <laughs> How so? What? What? Uh, you know, he's, uh, very active on Twitter, talks to Hideo Kojima, they're friends. Uh, he, you know, the name of the plane boat slash plot, uh, that John C. Riley uh, built? Uh, I did not catch the name of the boat. They called it the Gray Fox, which is the name uh. of the ninja from Metal <laughs> Gear Solid. That's, that's great. That's pretty good. Uh, John C. Riley's character, uh, Hank Marlowe, I think his character's name is. Dennis uh, Marlowe is wearing a jacket on the back. It says good <laughs> for your health. Dr. Uh, Steve Brule. Not only Dr. Steve Brule, uh, for your health, uh, his, his trademark. It is also a play on the vests from Akira that say good for health, bad for education. So it is a combination of for your health and good for health, good for your health in the, in the same typesetting of the, jordan vote roberts is a big fucking nerd that's pretty cool i like those little easter egg nods i think that uh more and more over time we're going to see people who have our sensibilities of being giant fucking nerds and then they make movies Uh, i'm glad that one of our kind was given the opportunity to make uh, kong skull island yeah yeah um the ending to this movie i you know Marlowe reuniting with his family aside, I think that was perfect. The end scene, like the the after credits scene in this movie, makes zero sense. Yeah, I have a whole thing to say about this. It sucks, but say your thing first. It really, yeah, it really makes no sense because we've got Tom Hiddleston and Brie Larson's characters in being held, not captive, but but confined by Monarch, and then the two scientists come in. And, you know, they, they set up what will become Godzilla, King of the Monsters, the next film. But they focus on these characters. Who, this is 1974-ish, 1973. But the next movie is going to be set in the present day. All of these characters will not be back. Yeah. Why? Who cares? All of these characters will be at least 70. Yeah, none of none of these people are going to be back. Why are they? They're focusing on these characters, especially Tom Hiddleston and Brie Larson's, as though they're going to be important. When one of the the very important things about the series is that almost no one kind of carries on from movie to movie until the most recent, the most recent one. This is something that I, I actually. This is my final gripe about the movie. Maybe my most damning. Uh, and this is what I was thinking. During the pretty cool fight in the in the Kong graveyard where Tom Hiddleston grabs the gas mask and starts uh, slicing weird birds up with a wakazashi. Yeah. Uh, very cool. Uh, I like cool. that a lot. Super cool. Very style over substance. But the, the one thought that I had is, you know, not to spoil anything we're going to talk about in upcoming episodes, but we've seen these movies. We, we've yeah. seen all of the legendary monster verse movies. Yep. And 
I think the thing that keeps them, as we go through this series, I'm starting to feel reflections in myself of the things I felt as I watched the Fast and Furious movies. And I think the thing that keeps these movies from being great mainstay things is that they don't honor their characters at all. They they really don't have any respect for these obviously like really cool characters that a lot of thought went into. I, I don't know about Ford so much uh, from the, from oh, the first movie. From the first one? Yeah, he was nothing. But like, I don't know. The scientist continues forward. Ken Watanabe continues. But to to see cool characters like your John C. Reilly's, your Tom Hiddleston's, your Brie Larson's. It's like, why don't we love these characters? Why can't we see them again? We had an entire after credit sequence where Tom Hiddleston learns this. Can we have one of these movies set in the eighties where we do follow Tom Hiddleston again? I don't think so. Cause at this no. point, I don't think anyone gives enough of a shit about his character, but if yeah. the next movie had had like, I don't know, like twin timelines that reflected on each other where we get to see Tom Hiddleston's character and then go forward to the future with like Coach Taylor or whatever. Like, maybe that would be cool. It's so tough considering how far in the past these movies are. I just wish they generally cared more about their characters. Yeah, they set up really great characters. Like, you had a legacy thing going on with Brian Cranston the Ford, and you had Elizabeth Olsen playing, I mean, acting circles around the rest of the cast. Give me Elizabeth Olsen in any of these other movies. You know, Ken Watanabe is a through line for sure between Godzilla and King of the Monsters. Um, But yeah, it would be nice to see some continuation other than Millie Bobby Brown and Coach Taylor because they're not doing it for me. Yeah. We'll we'll get to it, but like they didn't capitalize on that at all. Yeah, it's it's just so... It's a difficult road to hoe as a creative, and I don't know that there is actually like a singular creative vision behind these movies. I don't know that they have a Kevin Feige. Uh, uh, not, yeah, not no, to say but, that he's like the most amazing, but like, yeah. I don't know. I really like the characters in this movie, and out of all these movies, I think that I like the characters in, in this one the most, and it just kind of hurts my heart to know that these movies don't continue this through line of like really having good characters, really caring about them, really letting them thrive, which is the entire reason period Henry fucking period that fast and the furious is good. It would be a series of pretty unconnected, but sometimes spectacular action movies. But the fact that they nurture grow and care about their characters above all else is the entire reason those movies are good. No, absolutely. Completely agree with you from a creative standpoint. Um, But to rein you in a little bit from the numbers side, you got to think about these movies. They're going to be huge CGI sequences that will not be cut from the film after they're rendered. And they're going to take up a big chunk of, of the budget. So what can we not afford? Recurring characters with contracts who have yeah. big payouts that keep going on, which I you think can't is get why Tom Hiddleston when he's in an Avengers movie, you have to get what? him on an off year. Yeah, th- I mean, you got to think about it. This movie had Samuel L. Jackson, Brie Larson, and Tom Hiddleston. All three are now in the MCU. Uh, Hiddleston and Jackson were already in the MCU when this was made. So it's like, it's lucky you even got them to begin with. Then you got John Goodman, whose fee must be astronomical because he's John Goodman. Like they spent a lot on the characters here, but to get them to sign on to another movie 
would be unaffordable. Yeah, I mean, this movie costs $200 million to make, and there's a reason for that. And, and like, we've seen some of the, you know, the curtain has been pulled back just a little bit on some of the, the more recent movies where, uh, unfortunately, care, or actors have revealed that their parts have been cut almost completely. But it beca- it's because of that bottom line thing. If a CGI sequence is rendered, it will not be cut from the film because it costs too much money. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you don't really have to negotiate Godzilla's contract. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, Legendary definitely has a hand making it. But at the end of the day, WB is is both calling the shots. And we have learned of their character as of late, even though they've changed management a couple of times in the past couple of years. But we know where their priorities lie. They don't really care. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, this movie made $600 million. All of these movies are huge box office successes. It's yeah. just the, it's just, there's a little tiny moat within me that, that wishes, uh, for the kind of like artistic storytelling integrity to like really invest in these characters. But I understand that that's not necessarily a money making proposition. Yeah. It's unfortunate, but it, it's the, the dumb, stupid truth of it all. I started to spin out this idea of like a dual timeline movie where you have like Tom Hiddleston, like early. It's fine. Uh, I don't know. I just think that part where he killed the birds with the Wakazashi was really, was really cool. cool. Yeah. And I wish we could have more of that, but I understand why we can't because not even Tencent has unlimited money. I know. I The, the part where Tencent flashed up on the screen before this movie caught me by shock and surprise. I mean, they, uh, Tencent also uh, bankrolled Wonder Woman, a bunch of movies. Crazy. Crazy yeah. to me. Because there's no – usually with Tencent, you have to fear like some type of influence. But there's no influence in here. What are they – they're just making money? What, what's happening here? I think it's – well, the thing about uh, Tencent is uh, – well – they didn't do the Great Wall. I know they didn't do the Great Wall. But <laughs> I think a lot of people assume that Tencent is like, uh, yeah, uh, has an agenda. But Tencent actually is kind of agendaless because they did like Warcraft, which you know, biggest movie in China, but not, not amazing. They love it. They but they did it. like Wonder Woman and Venom and Bumblebee and Terminator and Monster Hunter and. Uh, they've done a lot of stuff, but I don't really okay. think they have an agenda other than putting like a big marquee Chinese actor uh, right. in the movie, which they tend to do. And I'm fine with. Yeah. As we should be. Yeah. I, I don't see an issue with that unless you're Disney. <laughs> I mean, pr- pretty, pretty diverse cast and, and calls. Wow. Starting its trip up. Pretty diverse cast in Kong Skull Island. Yeah. And diverse Fun cast, really no casting stuff that I could. I, I don't love Tom Hiddleston. I think he was great in this movie. John C. Riley was great. Tony <laughs> Kebble, Toby Kebble, great. Shea Is his Wiggum, name Toby? Great. You called him Tony, and I wrote down Toby. I have genuinely Which... no idea. I think it's Toby. Uh, it's Toby Kebble. Apologies to Tony's. Tony, Tony, Tony. Uh, but yeah, I have no issues with the cast. Uh, just yeah. wish. Anyway, everyone pulled their weight. Do it again. Everyone's good. Everyone is good in this movie. You know know what this movie is? Really good. It's really good. I mean, you know, we we don't do the scale on on the uh, the summer flick of the summer series. Instead, we rank the movies. But yeah, this movie, 
at the end of the day, it's very strong. It could stand alone. In fact, probably does. I was a Kong Skull Island booster from the early days, uh, never having seen the new Godzilla, and, as we've discussed, having a professional hatred of the King Kong franchise. Yeah. Uh, I only watched this movie because I knew that both Mark Evan Jackson and Eugene Cordero, two of my favorite uh, improv comedians and actors, were in this movie. Uh, so I watched it, and I loved it. Uh, really? I know that I said I was done with gripes, but I've got one more pretty serious gripe, mm-hmm. if you'll hear it. I will hear, of course. I'm, I'm always down to, to, yes. More shots of Vietnam-era people having a good time. I really <laughs> I really like the scenes where they were having a good time. Brie Larson was taking pictures of them. I think yeah, there the, was a, The Top there was Gun a montage. Amount. Yeah. There was a certain amount in this movie where you could kind of tell that Jordan Vote Roberts was okay with a certain level of improvisation and just letting stuff roll, which is enjoyable there's a couple back and forths that are awkward you can tell were improvised uh john c rowley telling that guy he's gonna kill him in his sleep oh dude i feel like a a decent chunk of the john c rowley stuff you could tell everything he was saying that was scripted but when he like came up to people and started rambling about how they were a good group of boys to die with (laughs) we're gonna die out here we're going to die, but if I'm going to die, you're a good group of boys to die with. And then he, like, laughed and wheezed and said, you shouldn't have come here. Yeah. Uh, I John love C. Riley's uh, <laughs> characterization, perfect. I loved him telling the guy, I'm going to kill you in your sleep. And it's <laughs> like, you're jo- oh, oh, you're joking. And he, and he starts laughing. He's like, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> it's, uh, it's so good. <laughs> uh, and there's even, like, there, there's a there's a little improvised bit with Toby Kebble about uh, letters to his son. And they, oh, like, yeah. say a letter, and they, it's like, that's too short. And it's, like, really awkward. And you know that someone wouldn't just write that right he, he kind of cracked up while he was saying it it's yeah. a joyous movie some of the dialogue yeah. is joyous that line about the pennsylvania cold rolled steel mm-hmm. so good and, and of course the the dear billy motif was came in real handy or yeah. came like it paid off really well when they find the site of of campbell or whatever his name like where he died and they're all like yeah dear, dear billy your father was the best of them and it's just like, oh, God, that hits hard. Oh, my God. <laughs> this movie had so much good stuff in it. John Goodman getting eaten by a skull crawler because his flash won't stop going off. And then oh, he keeps man. seeing the flash. I, so in that moment where John Goodman is taking a picture, I said, John Goodman's taking more pictures than Brie Larson. <laughs> and then he gets eaten. And I'm like, maybe that's why she doesn't take any pictures. Yeah, you're, you're not wrong. Uh, and also this movie, uh, judicious use of flare guns, which I always appreciate. Oh, you got to enjoy a good flare gun. Some, you know, as someone who just really appreciates some Vietnam era weaponry, oh, man. gotta love your M16s being in there. Gotta love your M79 grenade launchers, a classic. Not really used too much, but you know, you know that one from Birds of Prey. Uh, uh, look, they, they use Agent Orange on the uh, napalm on on the on the water to to burn king kong there's a flamethrower that that back oh you know. the way that flamethrower dude dies is so yeah. great it, it's like every weapon developed specifically for the vietnam conflict gets its airtime in this movie and a lot of the times it backfires which again kind of plays into this this horror of war thing 
kind of plays into like Hideo Kojima would definitely approve because um, he is, you know, the Metal Gear Solid is all anti-war that entire series. Yeah, but I also mean, if, just... if there's anything Metal Gear Solid believes, it's war is hell and the the accoutrement of war, pretty fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there's, and also completely interesting to see this take of the military because the first Godzilla movie was very pro-military. The military mm-hmm. was like, one of our last line of defense against the Mutos and Godzilla. And uh, that, that theme is kind of continued into this movie, but then we see it, it perverted and warped with hatred and vengeance so that the military was not the last line of defense, but the means of this group's destruction. Yeah, um, I mean, considering my biggest critique of Godzilla was that it was all military industrial complex when a, a Godzilla movie should be anything but that. It's very nice to have this movie make soldiers just humans. Right. And, you know, from here on out, we're going to lose the military. It's all going to be like private corporations and stuff battling. Um, but, you know, so this is the last time the series will make a comment about the military, really. But it, I just found it really interesting that, of course, the Americanized Godzilla has a lot to say about the military. And now King Kong, which has always been American, but not always militarized, is also making a comment on the military. Yeah, it's it's just very good. And then the boat had the Altazimuth ball turret, like, mounted as its gun. So cool. Yeah. yeah. Just cool. It's just a talking about this movie makes me want to go watch it again. It's really good. If only for John, the, the moment where John C. Riley takes his friend's sword from his grave. <laughs> it's just like, we're going to get off this island, buddy. <laughs> if only for the part where John C. Riley enters, uh, enters a dueling stance and says in Japanese, death before dishonor. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you can tell they've really bonded. The, for the part where that guy gets ripped off the boat by the birds and then torn <laughs> apart in the sunset. <laughs> That part was really brutal, and his arm came off, and it's like, oh, we don't have a shot. And I was like, not even to put the guy out of his misery? Like, put one in between his eyes before he gets eaten alive, guys. That movie was PG-13, and it was the grossest movie I've ever seen. That felt like an R. Like, especially with the the spider leg going through that guy's entire yeah, body. spider leg was pretty rough. Yeah. Whew. Man, I feel like this uh, this last two minutes was just us effusively heaping praise on this movie. That, that, I hate to ruin it for you, but that's been most of this entire episode. Um, Kong Skull Island, it is a banger. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, with, that, I think it, with, with that being said. It's, it's time for us to, to rate this on our lists of hot Godzilla summer hot takes. Um, and... I don't really have a bit planned for this whole series, so do you want me to go first? Uh, no, I'll I'll go first to preserve the uh to preserve the uh Okay. The ritual. Um you wanna know what my list name is? Yeah, sure. Please hit me with it. I'm gonna call it John's Godzillist. Could you run that by me again? I think I missed it. John's Godzillist. Okay, no, I, I heard you the first time. I was just hoping you would say something different the second time. Nope, I'm sticking to it. So, we uh, go <laughs> learning our lessons from our Fast and Furious times. We're actually going from worst to best, and we've only seen two movies. 
so I'm going to say number two on uh, John's Godzilla list has got to be Godzilla. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love that movie and a lot of the stuff it did. I had a lot more criticisms of it than I did my number one pick, which is Kong Skull Island. This movie rules. I have very limited critiques of this movie. Uh, it it might be up there for like most watchable movies for me. Not best movies, but movies I would most readily watch again, uh, top to bottom. Uh, just so enjoyable other than that part where that spider leg goes through the guy's mouth. I, I don't really want to watch that part again, but other no, than that, great. It's so horrible. It is just, oh, it's really God. awful. That is just mm, pain all the way down. It's terrible. Uh, I guess my list needs a name, and so I'm going to call it um, Henry's Hot Godzilla Summer List. Weep, weep, weep. Pretty good. Uh, I'm going to say that's maybe eight times as much energy as, as last week's had. You're up and up. You're up. You're going up. Uh, you're up and in energy. Sen- th- I mean, there's some caveats with this list because there can be no ties. It, it has to be se- sequential. Um, no one can say – can no two movies can claim the same space. Uh, and the, the, the criteria here is – I can walk you through it because that number two is Godzilla. Uh, I love Godzilla, I, I, the the character and the creature, and I like Godzilla way more than I like Kong. I'm going to say that out here, out loud. I'm going to reveal my bias. Um, and so number one is Kong Skull Island, and I'll tell you why. Mm. Rewatching Godzilla, I was surprised at how many moments were genuinely good because I didn't remember that movie in the best terms. But with Kong Skull Island, I wasn't surprised because it is so good. It wasn't a shock to me. <laughs> it's yeah. like I knew I was going into a good movie. And so I wasn't surprised. And, and it's that difference where, whereas I was surprised by how, how good I found Godzilla, whereas I knew Kong Skull Island was great. That's what's, that's the only sort of thing separating the two in terms of quality. Yeah, I mean, it's like eating at a restaurant and being like, this restaurant sucks. And then eating there again, you're like, oh, if I get the chicken vindaloo, it's actually really good. Uh, and versus like eating at a restaurant that you know is good and it blows your socks off every time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like uh, being surprised at eating at an Applebee's versus being surprised at eating I mean, going to a local joint that you, you know, you know every item on the menu and you're not going to be blown away, but you know you're in very good time. Yeah, I, I would say that uh, Kong Skull Island, very much the highly enjoyable local joint of the two movies Absolutely. Uh, we have watched. Yeah. And so we are in 100% in agreement for the second time. <laughs> I wonder if this trend will continue. I don't know. This is going to be real interesting because the next movie is uh, has potential to be real divisive between the two of us. Yes, then that is Godzilla, King of the Monsters 2019's Godzilla. It can't be 2020. It can't be 2020. It's to either two. It can't be 2018, can it? It can be. Is it 2018? It could be. I don't well, know. We'll find out. That's so weird. Godzilla was 2014. Three years later is Skull Island. But we know that the next one is sooner than that. Yeah, because the only movies that came out in 2020 are Bad Boys for Life and Birds of Prey. Sonic the Hedgehog. But yes. You're right. Sonic the Hedgehog was in 2020. Are you yeah, happy? I know. Are you happy? I know. It should have won Best Picture. Well, we <laughs> in that we are in agreement. <laughs> 
but hey, let us what you know. Let us what you know. <laughs> <laughs> Start with with the letter A. Walk us through everything you know. Now, let us what you think about our hot Godzilla. You just summer. said, "Let us what you think." Yeah, I know. Let that's what I meant know to say. What you think? God fuck. <laughs> you said, "Let us what you know," and then let us what you think. You didn't fix the biggest <laughs> problem with that. I'm dying. Let us know what you think. God damn it. Okay. So let us know what you think about our hot Godzilla summer hot takes. Uh, what movie did you like out of the two? What are your thoughts on the next movie? Save that for two weeks from now. Uh, but let us know what you think of this this intermediate, is that the right word? Inter, interwoven supplemental reading series we're doing this summer with Godzilla uh, by contacting us on twitter.com at ZCPCWHJ. And John, what does that stand for? Zong, Kong, Pong, Kong, Wong, Hong, Chong. Okay, that's right. That's absolutely correct. And if you have longer thoughts that won't fit within the confines of a tweet or a thread, send us an email at email at zerocredits.net. That's email at zerocredits.net. It'll be a good letter. We're on Spotify. You can find us by searching for zero credit, open parenthesis, as close parenthesis on Spotify. We're in the podcast area. We are not musicians. Don't get confused. We're also on Apple Podcasts, where you can give us a rating and a review to let us rise above the ranks and finally take on Conan O'Brien and his little podcast that he does for fun. We're real serious. You know, let us take on someone who's just clowning around. But the most important thing you can do is just tell a friend, hey, these guys, sometimes they review movies in a way where they notice things that maybe I didn't notice. Like the name of the float boat being Gray Fox and the connection between the director and famous video game designer slash creator Hideo and you say Kojima, so I'll say that now. Uh, so if you can just tell a friend and they can tell a friend, word of the mouth is the only way we can survive. Thank you. And of course, since uh, this may be my only chance on this podcast to go through my definitive Metal Gear Solid video game rankings, uh, here we go real quick. I'm going to say three, two, uh, one, four... Portable Ops 5. And from everyone here, don't talk to me about Metal Gear Solid. Don't talk to me about Metal Gear Acid. Don't talk to me about Ghost Babble. Don't talk to me about the ones on the NES. I don't care. Those ones are fine. Wait, no. Was it Portable Ops? Or was Portable Ops the Peace Walker was what I meant. Portable Ops is bad. So it's 3, 2, 1, 4, Peace Walker, 5, studios <laughs> we would like to wish you a happy week that seemed that seemed difficult for you john i it's uh, i'm doing it on the fly it's tough for me with four and one and mm. also two no it's right. gonna be three is definitely at the top it's three then probably no i'm gonna change it up three one goodbye. two four peace of your five goodbye, goodbye. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>